This is First Draft, a dialogue on writing produced at Aspen Public Radio. I'm Mitzi Rapkin. First Draft highlights the voices of writers as they discuss their work, their craft, and the literary arts. My guest is Chuck Palahniuk, who writes in many forms, including novels, novellas, graphic novels, short stories, and even coloring books. He also writes essays and nonfiction and began his career as a journalist. He is best known for his novel Fight Club, which was adapted into a film that is now a cult classic. Some of his other titles include Choke, Lullaby, Stranger Than Fiction, and his latest novel, Adjustment Day. Polinick is known for his interest in the fringes, the absurd, the darkly humorous, and the violent. His novel, Adjustment Day, portrays a near-future United States where the overpopulation of young men results in a type of uprising. The country is split into three regions called Blacktopia for the Blacks, Gaysia for the Gays, and Caucasia for the Whites. A list is formed on the internet naming public figures the masses can vote on regarding who among them should be killed, And a manifesto entitled Adjustment Day is circulating throughout the country, sharing a vision of the new American order. We began the interview with Polinick describing what Adjustment Day is. So Adjustment Day is basically a day in which teams of people have decided that they will stage a bloody coup and they will assassinate all of the people who the general public have voted on in this very informal way on the Internet. Um, They've created these lists that are comprised mostly of journalists and uh, academics and politicians. And uh, those people who received a certain astronomical number of votes are the people who were wiped out on Adjustment Day. The book's beginning is you're explaining this concept of surplus males of the youth bulge, and that when you have too many males that have all their basic needs met, then you can have this sort of political upheaval And most of these males represent not the educated intelligentsia, but maybe more of the rural working class males. Can you explain a little bit more about this concept and and why you thought it would be good to integrate into this novel? That was one of the uh, the, the sort of uh, uh, triggering elements of the book was reading the work of a a German academic named Gunnar Heinzen, who uh, writes in uh, Gdansk what used to be Dresden. And he is he's mainly known for a book called uh, Sonnen und Weltmacht, Sons and World Power, in which he traces every significant uh, historical event in human history to an overabundance of, uh, of young men. They have to be young men who are well-fed and are healthy and are also educated. These are educated young men who have been led to believe that they will attain a status and a recognition in the culture, but because they are extraneous, there is no, no ready pathway for them to, to achieve status. So they have to start a revolution. They have to go out into the world and colonize other cultures. They have to explore the world. This is basically, according to Gunnar Heinsen, why all of these things have happened in human history. Uh, his favorite example is the uh, conquistadors, the Spanish explorers, basically came about because the Pope outlawed uh, birth control. He made it punishable by death. And the Spanish family at the time ballooned from a typically uh, two children per middle-class family to seven children. And it was a surplus of extra sons that led to uh, 
the whole Spanish exploration of the globe and the, the conquest of the, of the New World. Your book opens with a bunch of men at a talk where they're in the audience, they're sort of lone wolf types, and there's kind of a sporting goods guy saying, you know, go out, basically hunt down this certain sort of person, claim their ear, and bring it back to us. So what's the significance of that in your novel? Well, the ear is a way in which people can uh, lay claim to having having, uh, assassinated one of the people targeted by the general public that uh, if the ear can be DNA typed back to the specific target, then people, uh, the, the assassin is awarded a certain number of votes in the new culture, the number of votes that uh, correlates to the number of votes that the general public voted for the assassination of this person. Say if everyone wanted a certain media figure killed and a million people voted for that, mil- for that media figure, then the person who could present the ear of that media figure would receive a million votes in the new culture. So I'm I'm assuming that you you did start writing this before Trump got elected, but there's certainly elements of a whole new world order in here, maybe some fascism, definitely segregation by race, by color, by sexual preference. When did you start writing this and how do you think this fits in with what's going on politically today? You know, I must have started it when I was living in Madrid in 2014, because at that time I was really unaware of the alt-right uh, news sites, aggregation sites for the really extreme identity politics people, uh, both black and white and gay and straight. And when it was in Madrid looking for U.S. news on the Internet, I kept on coming across these these fantastically skewed sites that were so outlandish that uh, that I, I went to them every day, and and those were the people I contacted, and trying to get an idea of what their ideal uh, world after a civil war would be like. Those people just love the idea of a civil war, and they they know exactly what the world should look like afterwards. So, what drew you to to writing a political novel, even in? In 2014, you know, I know you've taken on like young men and and power and you actually make reference to Fight Club in here and your main character, Tyler. Um, There's elements where maybe that was geared towards an individual where this is geared towards a society. But why were you ready as a writer to take this on? Well, a couple reasons. One is that one of my favorite writers is Ira Levin. And Ira Levin could always identify some social upheaval that was just over the horizon. And he could create a metaphor that would allow people to kind of exhaust their feelings around this issue, even as the issue itself was forming. In the 60s, when people could not civilly discuss abortion or how little control women had over their reproductive health, Ira Levin came up with Rosemary's Baby. And he created a whole language that allowed people to talk about those things. And then later in in the 70s, fairly early in the 70s, when no one could talk about the male backlash against feminism, he came up with the Stepford Wives. And he's always been able to, to create the metaphor that allows people to discuss the issue. And in a way, he disarms the issue uh, by doing so. And so... To some degree, I had hoped with Adjustment Day 
to address all of these, these dreams about civil war and these dreams about nations based on identity politics, to sort of play it out in a novel uh, so that uh, kind of let some of the pressure off. People could kind of play with the idea and get a kind of uh, cathartic, you know, sense of it. And maybe it would be less important. And on another level, I was raised with so many classic American novels where people talk about taking action and nobody ever does. And the main example would be uh, Grapes of Wrath. All through Grapes of Wrath, the, the Jodes, everyone talks about, you know, seizing arms and grabbing control of the nation, going up against their oppressors, but nobody ever does. Everyone just stumbles along, the baby dies, the end. Great Gatsby, same thing. You know, we never get Gatsby sort of coming to an epiphany. We do have this kind of embrace of the, the pointless, powerless, sad ending as the best ending. So I wanted to go against that grain and kind of write the Grapes of Wrath the way Ayn Rand would have written it, with that kind of big, bold, take-action Ayn Rand ending. Let's talk a little bit about the plot. So in this plot, you have someone named Talbot Reynolds, who is supposedly the author of this book that's sort of the Bible, if you will, for what Adjustment Day is, how you separate the society into, you know, a blacktopia, a geisha for the gay people, a caucasia for the white people. Can you talk about Talbot Reynolds, who he is, how he sort of um, maybe dominates over this this book, even though he isn't an actually present very much? He's the kind of wealthy uh, person who wants to, in a way, have his effect on the world before he dies. And so he is purposefully sort of destroying the world by giving this advice to the young man who's who's come to him for advice. And that's something that the Gunnar Heinz, the German academic, he wrote about that in every big social movement that is part of a youth bulge, they always have a book that justifies what they're going to do. And the conquistadors had the Bible, the Nazis had Mein Kampf, the Chinese revolutionaries had Mao's book of quotations, that there's always a book like a sutra that can be interpreted in a lot of different ways. And it's a book that is so ubiquitous that is it's kind of valueless because everyone has a copy of it. And so in a way, I wanted Talbot to be dictating that kind of a book because according to Gunnar Heinzen, that kind of a book is always necessary for this kind of a social upheaval. So if you had to describe to someone the underlying ethos of Adjustment Day, not the book, but the day and what it stands for, what would you say? Adjustment Day is the day when a whole lot of people decide that they're either going to have a fantastic, fantastic, enormous future, or they're going to die in the attempt. And so in one enormous gesture, they're either going to redeem themselves and seize the world, or they're going to be destroyed by the world. And they are satisfied with either outcome. I'm wondering if we could talk more about the organization of the nation and the the idea behind Blacktopia, which was basically South and Gaysia and Caucasia. How did that fit into the philosophy of Adjustment Day and 
those worlds separating the society of the government and country to come? You know, so much of that is steeped in in the philosophy of each of these identity groups that I talked to and that I followed so much on the Internet. Uh, this idea of not wanting to be held to the standards of a dominant culture, that, that each culture should should have the room to kind of be itself and not be constantly judged or or held to the, the code of behavior of what seems like an occupying uh, you know army you know that that gay people should not have to be bad copies of straight people and that black people should not be have to be bad poor imitations of white people uh, and that white people should not have to be these kind of paragon role models that set the standard for everyone and are expected to be constantly perfect and, and right about everything. So it was that kind of a, uh, an idea that the world should be allowed to fracture so that each culture could sort of re-establish itself. So much of the 20th century has been about consolidating things by force, forcing different regions, different tribes by force into becoming a single nation. Uh, by consolidating uh, measurements, consolidating all these different standards. I'm not surprised that so, so much of this consolidation has started to fall apart in this century. You know, so many of these huge conglomerate nations have just fractured. I think it's kind of a natural evolution that things will come together and then they will break apart. But the breaking apart is not a bad thing because it will allow each of the self-isolating elements to kind of reestablish itself and to not just be a huge demographic that products can be sold to more readily. Do you think if this were to come to pass that there would be a certain sort of freedom in our country that it would bring if we actually separated our society in the same way that you're suggesting in your book? I think there, there would be, but it would have very mixed results. There would be good things, but there would also be a lot of unpleasant things. And I try to explore all of that in, in the second half of the book. You've dug into such interesting areas of our society, whether it's, you know, violence or this power and money and politics. And I'm wondering where your sensibility of the world comes from. If you had really interesting experiences as a child, what your parents were like, where does Chuck's mind get the way it is? My degree is in journalism, and I really wanted an, an ability to be with people, a role that would that would put me into contact with interesting people doing interesting things, either at these very high points of their lives or very low points of their lives. And I saw journalism as that, that access to being with people and to hearing their stories. But to tell the truth before that, I wanted to be a priest, because as a small child, I was fascinated by the idea that you could just sit there in the dark and hear people's confession through that screen. And you would hear the most secret, uh, scandalous, upsetting, horrible, unspeakable parts of their lives. But it drove me crazy because I knew that you would have to keep that all a secret. So in a way, becoming a journalist was becoming a priest, but you, could, uh, you didn't have to keep things secret. In fact, you got paid for telling their secrets. So... It's that fascination with the unspoken parts of everyone's lives that uh, I think drives my stories. 
What's your reason for why there's so much violence in literature or in your literature? You know, um, there's so many reasons, but aesthetically, for me, I'm a child of punk. I'm a child of punk music in the punk era. And I, so, I didn't understand much of what I did until I heard an interview with Billy Idol. And, and Billy Idol said, you know, punk music started at full speed, boom, it ran for two and a half minutes at full speed, and then it fell off a cliff. Every punk song was that. It was yelling from the beginning to the end for two and a half minutes, then boom, silence. And I realized that the punk aesthetic had really shaped almost all my short stories. The idea is to start in media ray, right in the middle of the action, and to go very intensely, and then to sort of drop off a cliff at the end. Uh, so my aesthetic is a punk aesthetic. And on another level, I want to engage people on a physical level, not just a cognitive or an emotional level. I want to use something, whether it's violence or illness or sex or drugs, something that will pull their physical being into the story and so that they will have a sympathetic physical involvement that they can't control. Smells do that really well in stories. You know, you you really can't control whether you're smelling something. And so I'm looking for as many really visceral ways of getting a person into a story so that they're physically, intellectually, and emotionally involved. Another reason is that if you're going to do something in stories, in in fiction, it better better be something that they can't do in movies or TV because you got to play to the strengths of your medium. And you can do things in fiction that can only be done in fiction. And so I think that you have an obligation to do those things. Otherwise, you're just giving people a bad version of television. So that's three things. Punk, visceral involvement, and don't give people a bad version of television. Do you think when your fans meet you, they think that you're a violent person? You know, initially, initially, the first couple of years, they were expecting a werewolf. Now they get to meet this aging guy. And uh, there's no longer that shock or that disappointment. So it's, it's easier for all of us. What about your parents? My parents are dead. I don't know if they've been dead since you started writing, but did that change anything you wrote since they died? You know, my father died in 1999. And for the record, he was, he was murdered by a white supremacist. And my mother died in 2009. She died while they were making and releasing the movie Choke, which was about a son accidentally killing his mother. And after that, I was a little cast adrift because there's a line in Adjustment Day that says, while your parents are alive, you can never really become a fully-fledged individual because while your parents are alive, you're either a performance to please them or to punish them. And so I think it's only been since the death of my mother that I've been able to write things that just that weren't keyed to either make my, making my parents happy or, or maybe shocking them. So there are a lot of white supremacist ideas in Adjustment Day. Are you drawn to that, particularly because of your father's death? No, you know, Adjustment Day had to uh, had to have white supremacist ideas to and then in a way to kind of make fun of white supremacist ideas. There's a, a chain of restaurants called Whites Only, where everything on the menu is like the uh, Paula Dean white bean chili or the uh, Eva Braun 
white cheddar macaroni and cheese, skinless skinhead chicken sandwich. Everything on the menu is kind of sort of white culture or white supremacist related. So it's not just parroting white supremacist stuff. It's also kind of using it in a funny way. That's interesting. I'm so sorry about your loss, especially that way. It was a it was an incredible shock. You know, the uh, it was so odd because it was in 1999. Fight Club, the movie was about to be released. I was waiting for a call from Time Magazine. I was going to be interviewed by Time Magazine. And instead, I get a call from a very young publicist at W.W. Norton. I think her name was Megan. And she must have been about 22 years old. And she said, I'm really sorry, but we've been contacted by uh, a sheriff in the state of Idaho. And they think you found your father's dead body. Uh, you need to call the following number. And so I went from this kind of euphoric Time magazine expectation to this complete shock of, of dialing these strangers in Idaho and finding, uh, finding out that my father might be dead. And do you know why your father was killed? Yes, he, he had answered a personals ad. Uh, a woman who had served as a prison lawyer, and she had married a man uh, when he was released from prison. And he had subsequently sexually abused her daughter. And so she was pressing charges around the abuse, and she'd also divorced him. And he had sworn that he would kill her and anyone he ever saw her with. And so she had run a personals ad, and her daughter later told me that she was actually looking for the, the biggest guy who answered the ad because he would keep her safe. And coming home from their very first date, my father was taking her to, the, to her home, and this man was waiting, and he killed them both. I would think that would change your art drastically. It did. You know, my book, Lullaby, is very much based on, on dad's death. Uh, but the trick is to, to write the book in such a way the people don't know what it's actually about. And they can, they can look at the metaphor you're using and, and they can sort of see themselves in it. Because you want, you want them to think the book is about them. So if I said, well, what's Adjustment Day really about? If it, I'm not seeing the metaphor, what would you say? You know, that's the wonderful part is typically whatever is driving me to write the book is something that I don't recognize for sometimes a year or two after the book is published. And sometimes I'm mortified when I'm in public a year or two later presenting the book, and I realize the incredibly intimate thing I've actually put in this book, and I pray that no one will ever realize what my connection is, what my subconscious motivation was. So what has your response been, given that you did start this in 2014, and life in America today is very different? The most difficult response was that my uh, my long-term publisher, uh, Doubleday declined to publish the book. Uh, they were very troubled by the idea of the list and this depiction of uh, public figures being assassinated in such numbers. And so I love my editor at Doubleday. You know, Jerry has been a fantastic advocate for me. In fact, he wrote the introduction to the, uh, the Fight Club 2 graphic novel. But Jerry, in good conscience, just could not bring this book into the world. But then on the other hand, when it went to W.W. Norton, Norton really saw it as a comedy, so they had no problem publishing it. Did you see it as a comedy? I did. I thought, especially the second half, uh, really veers into kind of uh, burlesque. It becomes so ludicrous. that I thought the jokes are so broad. This whole chain of restaurants called Whites Only. 
but uh, it becomes so ridiculous. I, I thought that the second half completely disarmed the first half. Did your response of your longtime publisher at Doubleday make you think more, although I'm sure you have just based on the type of work that you write anyway, about what does art have limits? No. You know, going back to you've got to play to the strength of your medium. I think that since uh, since so few people read books and, and, and that books can be read by so few people, you, know, you really need a skill set. You need time. You need attention. Books require such an enormous amount of energy and time to consume that books have an obligation to tell the stories that only books can tell at this point in history. And so those are the extreme stories. So I think those stories should be told in books because only books can tell those. Uh, so I never, I never really hold back. In fact, my, my workshop that I was in with care writers for, for years and years since uh, 1990, it basically fell apart because uh, we were becoming too politically correct and we were telling each other what things we could or could not depict in stories. And we were saying what words we could or could not use in our stories. And so that political correctness kind of destroyed our workshop. Well, that's what I would think that 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 you'd want to, from your experience from Double Day, double down on these things that need to be said, that it's not just political correctness, it's almost like politeness, that art should not have these boundaries. And I know it's hard because there's also a commercial element to this, and it's every publisher's choice to decide what to publish. You know, and I think it went as much to the commercial, but also to the um, people are a little afraid of being a lightning rod right now in the culture. But there is so much uh, unresolved rage in the culture since the elections that nobody wants to stick their head up too long and risk attracting all of that uh, that upset. Yeah, nobody wants to channel that and be the be the target of that. So... Yeah, I can understand why people would, would self-censor, and why companies would self-censor. Can you read a passage from an author that speaks to you or influenced you as a writer? I'd like to say the title afterwards, but I'll go ahead and launch into the passage. "'Twas brillig in the slidey tovas did gather and gimble in the wabe, while Mimsy was a burro girl as in the mouth doth grave. Beware the jabberwock, my son, the jaws that bite, the claws that catch." Beware the juju burden, shun the frumious bandar snatch. He took his vorpal sword in hand, long time the maxim foe he sought, till rested he neath the tum-tum tree, and stood a while and thought. And while an uffish thought he stood, the jabberwock with eyes of flame, came whittling through the torgy wood, and burbled as he came. One, two, one, two, and through and through the vorpal blade went snicker-snack, he left it dead, and with its head he went galumphin' back. Hast thou slain the Jabberwock? Come to my arms, my beamish boy, O fragrous day, Kaloo Kalei. He chortled in his joy, t'was brillig in the slidey tovas, did gar and gimble in the wabe, all nimsy with a borogorbus, and the mumrats doth grave. Jabberwocky by Lewis Carroll. And why did you choose that? Because I love that he invented words. He invented words, and he made up words, and he used words wrong, and it all makes sense because of context. And I think context is 
something that is a main theme in all of my work. I love using nonfiction contexts, nonfiction forms that will allow me to tell an even more ludicrous story because the nonfiction form lends it gravity and reality, credibility. And it also creates a structure where you don't have to invent every transition uh, in the story. So nonfiction forms and context in general, I find, is, uh, is something I always come back to. Uh, context seems to carry story even more effectively than, than words. Can you read a passage that you wrote? Maybe it was tricky or hard to write or changed a lot from the first draft? It's from uh, the beginning of a short story called Eleanor. Randy hate trees. He hate trees so passionate that when the Internet journalized about the wholesale defenestration of the Amazon rain jungle, Randy, he considered that to be a fine and noble term of events. Mostly pine trees. He hate the way a pine tree move. It moves slow, then moves fast. First so excoriatingly slow, you forget it always be moving. That the method a tree get its tonnage to board feet up higher and higher until it be zeroed in right on top a person's head. After that, a pine tree moved fast, like booby trap fast, too fast to perception. Leastwise, Randy Daddy never perception it coming, post dating a lifetime of setting choke and pulling green chain. Randy Daddy already be living on bothered time. One fast move. And all that raw lumber smatter the hairy dome of his thin skull to a billion bloody fractions. Why did you choose this? Because I was so uh, discombobulated after writing that story. It's, it's about writing a story in which you choose the wrong word all the time. And at the same time, you are breaking the language. and You're making it really fresh. So people have that kind of joy of discovery that they first had when they first learned how to read. Yet, like, you've learned this skill, and now you're using the skill. And suddenly you have this, uh, this, this wonderful uh, awareness in the world. And by, by writing wrong like that, and, and trusting that the context will explain everything that's done so intentionally wrong, uh, I, I want to give people this, this, this sense of, of rediscovering the joy of reading. Where do you write? I write pretty much everywhere. But I tend to uh, love to write in public places like airports and hospitals and car dealerships. Or a lot of times I, I write at the gym, any place like that where I'm around a lot of people. And I, if I need a gesture, if I need some sort of mannerism, I just need to look up and, and sort of search the crowd until I see exactly the mannerism the character needs at that moment. What do you do or where do you go to get away from writing? The three A's, Advan, alcohol, and ambient. That is the only way I can get away from writing uh, is uh, to get loaded. And it's not a good habit. Who do you show your work to first to get feedback? It used to be workshop. And now uh, it is uh, a writer friend, an editor uh, here in Portland. But a lot of times, David Sedaris had told me that when you go on tour, never read from the current book. Always read from an upcoming book because it's a way of road testing your material. So much of the time, when I go on tour, I'll read short stories or things 
from an upcoming book, chapters from an upcoming book, just to see where the laughs are and see if they really work as well as I thought they did. So uh, it's kind of like opening out of town. It's a way of uh, sort of beta testing your material before it actually becomes a book. How have you dealt with rejection? Usually whatever they object to, I focus on making that part even more objectionable. And what is your favorite word? Oh, tin tabulation. The tin tabulation that so musically swells from the bells, 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 bells. That word that Edgar Allan Poe made up. You've been listening to First Draft, a dialogue on writing produced at Aspen Public Radio. My guest was Chuck Polinick, author of the new novel, Adjustment Day. Some of his other titles include Choke, Lullaby, and Fight Club. You can follow First Draft on Facebook. Just look for First Draft, a dialogue on writing and click like, and on Twitter at First Draft APR. You can email me at firstdraftwriters at gmail.com. The theme music for First Draft was produced and performed by Murph Mahaffey. I'm Mitzi Rapkin. Thanks for listening.